0: This is Bloomberg Business Week, insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, and welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, week 54, working home still for so many. It's week, Tim, where more U.S. states open vaccines to anyone 16 and older, where Wall Street was maybe finally, finally seeing a path back to the office.
2: Hey, this is our backdrop. The Biden (laughs) administration, of course, saying weeks ago that by May 1st, Biden wants to see this happen in all 50 states, vaccine eligibility being available to all adults. We did have some big macro conversations, though, this week on everything from ESG and EVs to what Wealth and our own well being.
1: Right, including conversation with Nobel laureate economist Joe Stiglitz on the developed world, remembering the developing one, especially if we want to end COVID.
2: Plus Jimmy Etheridge, CEO of Accenture North America, on being okay to say that you're not okay during the pandemic.
1: It is okay to not be okay. And we've also got a former NFL Pro Bowler on being a force for good and tapping into the sanitizing craze. All that to come, we begin with the cover story. This week, a business takeover of the magazine that's all about vaccine passports.
2: Companies and governments from Beijing to Brussels that depend on travel or large gatherings. they're counting on the unproven concept of vaccine passports to get the wheels of the economy going again.
1: Bloomberg Businessweek Assistant Managing Editor Jim Ellis oversaw the coverage.
2: So we, we've heard so much about um,
3: you know, the pain that businesses have had and, and the countries have had, you know particularly tourist-dependent uh, countries, uh, since the pandemic has pretty much stopped the ability to sort of easily move between places or even to congregating groups. So I thought it would be a great idea to sort of take a long look, a deep dive at, um, you know, A, the problem and also the range of solutions that are coming out now and whether this vaccine passport, the sort of mythical savior that so many people have been talking about, is really going to be as effective, and as easy to put together as a lot of people seem to think. I mean, this is one of those things that this is a solution that mm. people came up with quite quickly before actually understanding ex- what it means.
1: Right. Well, so it's like really, story,
3: take a look at that.
1: really, will it be the golden ticket? And you guys take us to Israel, you take us to uh, Europe, where I feel like this is where we're starting to see kind of moves in that direction, at least more ahead than some other parts of the world.
3: Yeah, they've been uh, very, very much more um, interested in, in, in getting things reopened in a coordinated way than here in the U.S. for for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's uh, in some ways it's simpler because their health systems sort of uh, uh, centralize a lot of data, and so therefore uh, here in the U.S. we've got a health system where, you know, millions of different systems in every state, and so it's sort of hard to be able to track people. That's easier in, in countries that have their own health systems. But more importantly, um, certain parts of the world are so impacted by the drop in travel that they have an interest in getting this back together, particularly Europe. Europe has a lot of countries, particularly in southern Europe, like Greece or Spain, or in Italy, that desperately need tourism to come back. It's a big piece of their GDP, and they want some reason to say that it's safe to travel. Whether it's truly safe or whether that's just a fig leaf, it seems more and more businesses, whether it's an airline, whether it's in the hospitality business, but increasingly, whether it's in things like sporting events, um, uh, you know, gyms, all those are looking to a vaccine passport as a way to say, hey. It's safe. Here's your get-out-of-jail card. You have this. Now let's get back to business as usual.
1: All right, so let's talk about some of the things that are out there. There's the International Air Transport Association. They've got a travel pass app. You've got uh, the EU with their digital green pass uh, proposal. You've got the AOK pass. Any of this really working well or at least maybe some tests of it?
3: Well, yeah, the things are in test. The issue is that there's right now no coherence standard mm. about what these things should um you know sort of what kind of data they should capture and how they should be able to uh, sort of share that data and what do you have to do to make sure that that data is sort of private because it's often tied to other data other health data on you and other sort of just personal information on you which is a really big issue in parts of the world particularly in Europe where privacy is a major concern about, over everything and so you've got a lot of competing systems as opposed to a standard, whether it's, you know, right now Air France is uh, uh, trialing something called an AOK pass, um, you know, IATA, you know, has its travel pass, the common pass, which is something that's backed by the World Economic Forum. All of these are basically competing systems that in various ways take your vaccination and, and, and COVID testing history and put it in. Uh, into a form that can somehow be displayed on a screen. Uh, the problem is that um, you know how that happens can really affect how private the data is. So increasingly, what we're seeing is people are you know coalescing around sort of an open standard uh, that's tied in with the way that we look at security on the World Wide Web, which is pretty well you know adopted around the world. And the key here is rather than having a central database that has everyone in the world's health data, which is something that most people would not want.
1: (laughs) I'm just going to say, you made me really nervous. Like I think about, it's like similar to what we're trying to do with, you know, medical history. Every time I go to the doctor's office, I'm frustrated that I file something out, but will I be ultimately comfortable if there is some universal database that knows everything medically on me?
3: Particularly since this database is, you know, some people would say that's cool if it's just to transport, you know, to, to to transit borders or something right. like that, where government I, I, is involved. But increasingly, you know, this is going to be used. I mean, Britain is arguing now about whether this can be, whether a vaccine passport can be used for admissions to
2: pubs. Look, a lot of. Thorny issues can arise mm-hmm. when you're thinking about this type of thing, Carol. That yeah. was, of course, Bloomberg Business Week Assistant Managing Editor Jim Ellis. Check out the full cover story and coverage, including more on the uncertain science of vaccine passports, It's all in the magazine, on
1: newsstands, online, and on the Bloomberg. With everything with COVID, it's never a straight line forward. All right, coming up, more on the virus with Nobel laureate economist Joseph Stiglitz, who talks how we can free the world from COVID-19.
2: He weighs in, too, on taxes, as well as Jamie Dimon. You're listening
1: to Bloomberg Businessweek. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovich from Bloomberg Radio.
1: So, Tim, safe to say we had so much to talk about when Nobel laureate economist and Columbia University professor of economics Joe Stiglitz joined us.
2: Yeah, he's also co-chair of the Commission on Global Economic Transformation at the Institute for New Economic Thinking. The organization recently publishing a report on how dealing with the pandemic needs to be a global effort and one that takes care of the developing world.
4: The key point is that, that uh, the developing countries, particularly in emerging markets, are uh, not uh, on track to have the kind of uh, light at the end of the tunnel that we're beginning to see in the United States. Uh, in two uh, distinct areas, uh, we're getting vaccinated uh, President Biden talked about July 4th being our day of independence from the, hmm. from the uh, COVID-19. And there are many, many countries, as we document around the world, that have not had a single vaccine. They just can't get access. Uh, they can't afford it. Uh, and one of the points we make is that that supply constraint is in part artificial. Uh, the second thing is... United States has spent uh, approximately seventeen thousand uh, dollars per capita, twenty-four percent of GDP, uh, on uh, the economic recovery. The Rescue Act, uh, combined with the CARES Act that was passed last uh, spring and the December bill, um, the developing countries are spending a fraction of that because they just don't have the money. Uh, they're spending on average somewhere between $2 and $17 per capita. Compare that with uh, $17,000 in the United States.
2: Professor, let's start with the the recovery when it comes to vaccinations around the world, then get to to economics in just a few minutes here. But obviously, the two are intertwined. I got to ask, you know, when it comes to this virus, the way that we're looking at it, I think so many Americans look at it from a perspective of where they live, right? In their neighborhood, Who, who they're around in their city. And those are the statistics that they're looking at, how easy it is to get them a vaccine. Make the case as to why we should take a global approach and why we're not out of the pandemic until the world is vaccinated.
4: The, 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 the real reason, one of the real reasons we ought to be concerned is this virus uh, seems particularly successful in mutating. And as long as it's mutating, as long as it's flourishing in any part of the world and uh, the longer it flourishes, the more mutations, some of those mutations are going to come back and, you know, to put it, you know, bite us. Uh, we don't know when and we don't know uh, how bad it will be. Will, be, will those mutations be uh, more um, contagious, more deadly? Uh, will they, uh, we just don't know. So we are at a very big risk letting this uh, virus just basically flourish in some parts of the world.
1: And listen, not apples to apples, but Professor Stiglitz, you know, coming off of the financial crisis, I think we learned hopefully a lot in terms of we thought this was gonna be developed you know, the developed world thing, we saw it really spread around the globe uh, in terms of the crisis. Is there something that we can or should have learned from that crisis that we can carry over to this crisis in terms of its impact globally?
4: Well, you remember in that particular crisis, uh, the G20 was founded on the basis of the recognition that we needed to have a global economic recovery. Uh, Gordon Brown, who was the Prime Minister of the UK at the time, was particularly forceful. He pointed out that if uh, one country is doing well, it helps its neighbors, and if it's doing poorly, it hurts its neighbors. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've lost an enormous number of jobs in the export area because of uh, the global slowdown. So just in our own self-interest... That there'll be a, a strong global recovery, uh, and certain sectors, of course, uh, if we don't have a slow, a strong recovery, they they just won't be able to get back on their feet. So that's uh, on the economic side why it's so important for this to be a global uh, recovery. Back in two thousand eight nine, China played a very big role in that global economic recovery. Uh, it grew really uh, very very strongly. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, China is the only major country growing, but it's only growing at about 3%. Uh, next year, it's expected to be uh, somewhat stronger, but, uh, uh, with, uh, Europe, uh, as weak as it is, um, Decline of something like twice that of the United States, eight percent, and having a hard time getting the vaccines and and getting the disease under control. It's really important that developing countries and emerging markets have as strong a recovery as we can engineer.
1: What do we need to put in place in order for this to happen? At this point, is this just a case of developed governments saying, "Listen, we've got to spend to help these developing economies get the vaccine"? There is it that the first big step that we have to do?
4: Health is obviously uh, the first order of business. Getting uh, vaccines, therapeutics, protective gear to the uh, developing countries and emerging markets is absolutely necessary. There's a policy framework, though, that can help facilitate that, and that's a temporary suspension on some of the intellectual property rights that pertain particularly to COVID-19.
2: Meaning allow companies to reproduce vaccine and other technology so it can quickly be distributed?
4: Absolutely. And, you know, they can pay a, 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 a license fee. It's not like you're uh, not compensating those who did the basic research. But remember... Much of that research was funded by the public in the United States and in Europe. So, uh, and the returns that have all that the vaccine companies have already uh, obtained or scheduled to obtain this year are, you know, look like they will be a enormous return on their private investments.
1: Let's talk about your plan and the Institute for New Economic Thinking, this three pronged strategy of helping the world in terms of getting beyond COVID and its impact. We've already talked about vaccines, that vaccines need to be made available for the developing world. You also, though, the other two prongs, economic recovery policies and debt management. Talk briefly about
4: those. I mentioned earlier that the uh, fiscal space in the United States is just so much larger than these developing countries and emerging markets. They just don't have much, much, much they can do. So if there's the usual stance of too little debt restructuring done too late, these countries' growth gets so inhibited, they aren't able to pay as much as they would be able to pay if you gave them more space right now.
2: That was Nobel laureate economist Joseph Stiglitz, also co-chair of the Commission on Global Economic Transformation at the Institute for New Economic Thinking.
1: going to say we're just getting started with the weekend show, but that was one of my favorite conversations this week. Yeah, that was one of my favorites as well. We right. could have gone, we could have done the entire show with them, Hours and hours and hours. All right, still ahead, there are many worries out there when it comes to dealing with the coronavirus, right? We know that. One toll in particular is that on our collective mental well-being. The CEO of Accenture North America, Jimmy Etheridge, walks the talk.
2: That conversation next on Bloomberg Business Week. This is
0: Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business app and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week.
2: News this week about Blackstone leading a $100 million funding round in the on demand mental health company Ginger.
1: Right. And then we also had Tim, Citigroup CEO, Jane Frazier. She banned Friday internal Zoom calls and encouraged vacations for her staff. It's all about an effort to combat workplace malaise that's been brought down by the pandemic. I mean, everybody's feeling kind of wiped out.
2: Yeah, I'd be OK with no video call Fridays. Would ever,
1: you Ever, ever.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Well, our mental well-being, Carol, has been one of the other crises over the past year, exposing mental health struggles as never before also increasing corporate awareness.
1: Big time. Think about all the conversations we've had with CEOs and leaders about the mental well-being of their their teams. With that in mind, I did catch up with Jimmy Etheridge. He's the CEO of Accenture North America. This happened at the Bloomberg Live Mental Health and the Economy virtual event. I began, though, by asking him about the economic and market outlook. I had to do this, especially since Accenture works with global clients in all industries.
5: We survey the C-suites of our clients uh, a couple times a year. And the... Outlook right now is as optimistic as it's been. The survey that we did in December, which is over 1,500 uh, C-suite executives, the vast majority are anticipating this k shaped recovery, consistent really around the globe, and a pretty optimistic uh, outlook. Uh, A little more optimistic in North America, where about half of these executives feel they'll meet their growth goals by the end of 2021. A little more pessimistic when you look at uh, Europe, and, um, you know, I think not surprisingly, a lot of this is tied to success with the vaccine and vaccine deployment. What's happened with COVID has really created a little bit of a technology time machine. And our and clients mm-hmm. are moving much more quickly around technology investments, looking to achieve in 10 months what normally would have taken them uh, five plus years to do. And that's good news for our business because we're exactly where our clients need us to be. But you know, as you were saying uh, with some of the survey results, the fact is a, a lot of the productivity that the clients have experienced over the past year has really been through adrenaline as much as anything.
1: Well, let's talk about those pressures. I've seen them firsthand, I've seen them with colleagues, I've seen them with family members. Jimmy, what have you seen uh, with your employee base, with your leadership team over the past year?
5: First of all, I'm, I'm really proud of what our employees have been able to accomplish. The creativity, the compassion, and the resiliency, we shifted what has been a long traditional client service model of being on-site at clients with, with a lot of our services to completely working remotely, and for most of our employees, working from home. And the fact that we were able to do that without skipping a beat with the client service Um, The fact that we've had to shift so many key processes to being virtual, it it still blows my mind that with the thousands of people that Accenture has hired in the last year, none of them have ever stepped foot in an Accenture office. Probably none of them have met in person with Accenture leadership or colleagues. But the compassion and grace that I've seen our people try to take care of each other uh, in dealing with, you know, what's a combination health crisis economic crisis, and social uh, crisis, it makes me very proud. However, while the teams have been incredible, they are clearly feeling the stress, anxiety, depression. Uh, like, like a lot of corporations, we do internal surveys. And it was very clear that everyone is, is feeling that. And I think it kind of goes back to the point I made earlier, that the adrenaline can only take you so far. And the things that are happening and people that they're having to deal with are really putting a lot of pressure on mental health.
1: Well, and you know, it's interesting as I feel like we all will say, how you doing? I'm doing okay, or I'm having a bad day. And then we just kind of brush it off. But when you start to drill down and we actually took a poll of uh, our audience here and asked the question, have you experienced any of the following since COVID-19 lockdown and almost 40% said they have experienced anxiety, Um, almost 31% said they felt lonely, 26% depression. And then in terms of thoughts of self-harm, about 4%. Tell me like those results, how do they speak to you?
5: I I certainly can relate to them and I can relate to them personally. I mean, my life is a lot different than it was before. Um, I've been, I haven't been on a plane in over a year and you're talking about someone who lives, uh, lives in airplanes and airports. Um, my dogs have gotten to know me better uh, than the guy that just meets us on the weekends. Um, and of course I've got the cliche COVID puppy that has become a key part of my stress therapy and and kind of coping mechanisms. But I I will say uh, back to your point about how are you doing? Um, I'm speaking more frequently with the C-suites of our clients, in part because video just enables it a lot easier than getting on a plane and going to meet with someone.
1: All right, got to say, it's a hard thing for most of us, Tim, to admit. And maybe, maybe just look soon for a chief empathy officer coming to mm. a company near you. That'd be nice. Right? Wouldn't it? Yeah part of the C-suite. That was Accenture North America CEO Jimmy Etheridge. You can watch the full interview on Bloomberg Live's YouTube page, so be sure to check that out.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up next, speaking of empathy, a former NFL pro bowler on athletes being agents of change.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: So Tim, it's over a year since I caught up with former NFL Pro Bowler and fullback for the Atlanta Falcons. I'm talking about Ovi Muhaley. We caught up at the Bloomberg Power Player Summit, like I said, about a year ago in Miami.
2: Ovi's president and founder of the foundation that bears his name. And Carol, a lot has happened since you two last talked. The pandemic, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement gaining so much momentum over the summer and more.
1: There was so much I wanted to talk with him about and we really got to it. And I got to say, though, like so many of our conversations, Tim, that we do on our daily radio radio show. We had to begin with what his life has been like.
6: It's been crazy, but um, we're definitely blessed and uh, realizing now more than ever that we're blessed to be a blessing.
1: Well, and it's interesting. It's been a year um, that... You know, we talk about the dual crises, whether it's racism, inequities, obviously the health pandemic. And I just wonder, you know, we've had some great leaders in all communities, including the sports community, kind of step up and help us get through this. What do you see as kind of the roles of, of athletes and, and other leaders in the sports industry uh, when it's times of crisis?
6: Well, really, it's using your voice, using your platform for, for good. And it's wherever you feel like you can make the most impact. Uh, I think a lot of people have uh, pivoted whatever their nonprofit does to provide COVID solutions. Like, you know, with uh, the work that I do with um, United Way, I'm blessed to be on their board and with my nonprofit. In the environmental space, we have to just try to pivot to how can we help these kids? Uh, So it's everything from trying to get the resources so they can work at school, uh, mental health resources, uh, trying to – make sure food is available, and, of course, testing. Uh, being a doctor's son, I've had my medical consulting firm for the last eight years. Since I retired, uh, I've been really just trying to use my love of the medical field to help doctors and their patients. So everything from PPE to testing to try and just you know finding resources for those who need them the most.
1: What are you hearing, too, in terms of the black community in the Atlanta area uh, and other minorities in terms of stepping up and being comfortable with taking the vaccine?
6: That's an interesting one, because Mm. uh, I'll be honest with you, even me personally, I've been on the fence for a long time, but I'm definitely leaning towards getting the vaccine uh, just because having a face-to-face conversation with people who had COVID and have told me like dear friends of mine, uh, their experiences. Uh, going through it, it's to the point where as as much of unfortunate fortunate hesitation there is in the African-American community, and that I have as well, whatever symptoms I could have from the vaccine isn't worse than death that could come because of COVID. So I'm, I'm moving that way. But it's really just using the, the voices that African-Americans listen to and that they trust to try to let them understand that, they, that the vaccine is, uh, you know, the best way to move forward safely.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Um, Hey, one thing I want to ask you, because you, listen, you know, you were great when you caught up with us at the Power Player Summit. And and you guys, you know, you're out there. You've got causes. You're helping others. But you've also got some interesting investments. Tell me um, about an investment and business that you've been involved in, you know, in a business that's very appropriate to this time, sanitizer.
6: The foundation, we partnered with an eco-friendly company called Astria. And they use hemp biodegradable uh, plastic for their refills. And rather than using batteries, they have a foot pedal sanitizer. And so the model that we are using is, you know, really unique. And I'm surprised that more people haven't used it. We have a high end uh, European device. It's lower to waist high, stainless steel, laser etched, powder coated, fully customizable. And it allows our partners, our clients, to make their customers feel comfortable going to a uh, stand. And I won't name any, any names, but some of the leaders in the Santa market, you look at their stands and they look kind of janky and, you know, kind of a rundown and they're full. Ours has a sensor to where anyone can see which one of their uh, dispensers is full, needs to be refilled, and so on and so forth. But we took it to the next level and have added a sponsorship model where with some of our clients like St. Regis or Google or, Penn State, uh, you know, or some of the other uh, wonderful clients we're working with, we'll find a sponsor that can go there and actually pay to be have their logo and their insignia, and even there's a QR code that could be on there to get their information out there. A uh, quick example, Penn State has Target as a sponsor, and rather than Penn State having their Santa be an expense, now Target, who gets more than enough, uh, I think, uh, coverage, being on these dispenser has a qr code that gives percentages off to get some of their students to go to target they're making money penn state's making money and uh we're doing well because part of the proceeds goes to our non-profit
1: that's really terrific and i know you're doing stuff with b of a cox communications you mentioned penn state delta u.s bank um you know and you said the money goes to your your foundation i mean talk to us about where that money then ultimately goes
6: yeah, so um, we've been really on the forefront, uh, very proud to say I am the first NFL player to have a fully environmental foundation back in uh, 2008 <laughs> when it wasn't even, uh, uh, you know, I guess in to talk about the environment. And my biggest thing was just trying to use my platform to educate and inspire the next generation of environmental leaders. I wanted to bring more diversity and inclusion into the green space because that's the only way we're going to solve this problem. And so... The money is going for our comic books. Our second edition of Gridiron Green is coming out, and we have a curriculum that goes along with that. We call it a sustainability STEM curriculum, where we focus on the science, technology, engineering, and math in the sustainability space. Because there, there are so many green jobs out there, but very few people in you know urban areas or black and brown people are buying, or not enough are, are buying for these green jobs because they don't know about it. They don't know uh, about the opportunity to do good and do well. They're not uh, exposed to it on a a daily basis like uh, other parts of the country is. So we want to use my influence as as an athlete and also entertainment and just fun to really expose people with some of the great ways that you could uh, be part of the solution.
1: Right. It's not just about opening doors. You're actually providing doors. Ovi, you know. What I loved about when we talked over a year ago, but I'm even thinking about as we're talking now, you know, you're someone who's accomplished a lot and, and succeeded um, and done very well. But you know, this past year has exposed that not everybody has the same opportunities. And in particular, if you're black in America, it's very difficult. And you have a different set of doors that are opened or not open to you than a lot of other individuals and a lot of white Americans here. What's the smart conversations that we need to be having? What are the, what are the conversations you've been having with, you know, um, people that you know, black, white or other, uh, that you think will help move this all forward and to a better place?
6: Uh, absolutely, because uh, you, you can't uh, have any conversations about moving forward with people until we discuss, you know, racism, because it, it, it's always there. It hasn't gone away. It's just become more prevalent in uh, the last couple of years uh, against all races but especially, you know, with African-Americans. And so what we're doing is trying to just uh, educate people because it's, it's hard to do better if you don't know better. It's really hard. It's just like, you know, we always said in football. If you know better, do better, same thing applies in life and and towards racism. I had a really interesting conversation with uh, uh, a high school friend of mine, Scott, where uh, we hadn't spoken in a long time. And he, Went out of his way to ask me, you know, how are you doing? He's a uh, uh, Caucasian, uh, a white mm-hmm. uh, gentleman, uh, and he was like, you know, how are you doing with everything that's gone on in the last year uh, with with race? You know, and I said, wow, no one's asked me that. No, no one, none of Amazing. my white friends have just said like, how, how are you doing? Are, are you okay? How, you know, what what can I do to help? And it was very, it took me aback, but I was really impressed and appreciative that he asked that. I gave them some really simple answers. I was like, those who want to be an ally to people of color, uh, and especially African Americans, they just have to speak up. And, and you don't have to do everything. No one can solve this in a snap of the finger or with one act, but it's the accumulation of more people who aren't as oppressed and who aren't, uh, don't have some of these uphill um, uh, hills to climb and can easily call somebody out or make a point to uplift someone who should be in, in a certain position. Because they know that, hey, my job is safe. I can speak out. You know, some other people will be able to speak out or, or say their truth because their color. They have to just keep quiet and do what they're doing. So, uh, to answer your question, it's really about getting more uh, white people to to help really enforce where we're going with this and how we're trying to move forward. Because I've been. Uh, very blessed to have some great friends, and um, and when they reached out and asked how they could help, and I gave them the solutions, they've actually taken advantage of it, and they've done it. So that, that helps out a lot.
1: Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting, Ovi, too, and I'm thinking um, what you just said, it's just kind of really staying with me. And I, I do wonder, though, you know, your experience in the NFL, and I, I'm not looking for – you to be critical or anything like that. But I do wonder, I feel like the NFL itself, you know, there's been some enlightenment perhaps, you know, or some better understanding, you know, I think of Colin Kaepernick and how much criticism he came under, you know, initially uh, and how that has evolved. Um, what What are your thoughts on that?
6: My thoughts are that it's uh, it's interesting. And, and my wife always uh, has cautioned me not to be too, too honest, but I'll be slightly <laughs> honest. They, they messed up. They messed yeah. up in a big way. They, they, they messed up, and I think they were trying to just say whatever people want. They thought people wanted to hear, and the, the truth of the matter, or the matter of the fact, is that you know he was absolutely right, and there is inequality, and there uh, there's a lot of racism that needs to be rooted
1: out. Yes, a lot more work needs to be done. And I'm glad we were able to talk about what the NFL has done in the past and what they're doing now in the future. That was former NFL Pro Bowler and fullback for the Atlanta Falcons, Ovi Muhaley.
2: That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Tim Stenevec.
1: And I'm Carol Masser. More ahead in our next hour, including our interview with Emory Law professor Dorothy Brown on her book, The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. Plus,
2: the end of Tesla's dominance may be closer than it appears. Cue the dramatic music. Dun,
1: dun, dun. (laughs) This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser.
2: And I'm Tim Stenovek. Plenty coming up ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Suite, including a front row seat to what exactly has been going on in the housing market with the CEO of KB Home. What is going on, Tim? Uh, Homes are getting expensive.
1: They are indeed. Speaking of housing, there's a new book out that looks at how racism and tax policy is impacting black home ownership and wealth creation. It's called The Whiteness of Wealth.
2: And we're going to wrap up with a voice very familiar to many, the grandson of Jacques Cousteau, Philippe Cousteau, along with the CEO of New Day Impact on teaching kids about sustainability and impact investing.
1: Come on, everybody. Let's get into the Zodiac. (laughs) I love that. You go first. All right. Deal. First up this hour, though, the battle, it is finally on, or at least it feels that way, Tim, when it comes to dominance in the EV market, which begs the question, is the era of Elon coming to an end? And one that Bloomberg
2: Europe Autos team leader Craig Trudell explored as he joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber.
7: Craig did a great job with this story. And, and you know, I just want to totally be clear that, you know, for, for more than a decade now, I think Tesla has just dominated what um, a bunch of naysayers said would n- never be a viable space. And uh, by by being such a leader in the space, it, it has absolutely transformed the future of the the auto industry. Um, and the question now is like, are there is there gonna be meaningful competition? And the head start that Tesla's had like leads us to, to now. And Volkswagen is going to basically be of you know, a viable competitor in the very near future. They will have almost instant scale from, from what we're um, able to kind of look at with their numbers. And we're gonna basically see a version of the world that starts to look a little bit more like streaming where Netflix mm. also had a huge lead. But it wasn't like other incumbents could enter the space and also have a decent business model. So, so Craig, how do you how do you see this all all sussing out? How realistic of a shot does Volkswagen really have here to take on Tesla's market power?
8: Yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting. The the comparison we made to streaming uh, absolutely makes sense. And I think you know the company that we raise in this story that you know is a great example of what VW might uh, be like is Disney, where. You know they—they they have uh, you know all the hits. Uh, they have an ability to you know uh, bring out some new ones. Uh, you you think about you know uh, Disney Plus and what a hit uh, the Mandalorian has been. Uh, you know Volkswagen is, is a company that uh, has a lot of flaws and uh, they they still have a lot to overcome in that regard. Uh, but Herbert uh really is dead set on on you know really taking on Musk and he's not uh you know sort of uh, dismissive of of Elon I think that's one of the the most interesting things about him he he really I I think takes Elon seriously ha, has thought highly of him and and has said so he's been very public about the idea that they are sort of a yardstick for VW which is really something Considering this is a company that sells, you know, in normal years um, more than 10 million cars worldwide.
2: Yeah, that's a lot of cars. <laughs> hey, Craig, I want to home in on something that I really focused on in your story, and it reminded me of what Volkswagen has gone through over the last year. Skeptics, you write, could be forgiven for raising their eyebrows at the idea of going electric. And I'm paraphrasing you here. Coming as it was from the same car maker that spent years gaslighting the world about quote clean diesel. Where is where is Volkswagen in getting over that scandal? Because it is you know, a, a, a tough message, I think, for the company, given its recent history.
8: Yeah, it's it's still something that is playing out in the courts, and it's still haunting them, you know, things things that, uh, that they're going to have to deal with in terms of more settlements uh, and, uh, you know, dealing with even questions about, you know, disclosure. Uh, a lot of those uh, sorts of issues uh, continue to linger. I think, you know, largely uh, the world has, you know, kind of, uh, more or less moved on. I'm, I'm sure there are consumers who, you know, did buy into the the, the quote-unquote clean diesel, uh, you know, messaging who really felt betrayed and would will never buy a VW again. But I think we have been surprised to see that, you know, especially in, in America where you know VW has never been, uh, you know, really big in, in the U.S. Uh, but we have seen, you know, th- this is a company that uh, while they're still small there, you know, they, they really have come all the way back in terms of the, the hit that they took in the immediate aftermath of that scandal. Uh, you know, they, they remain a sort of bit player, but they're back to where they were uh, or were back to where they were before uh, COVID hit.
7: And, you know, I think the other thing that Bear is mentioning there, uh, Tim and, and Craig, I'd, uh, we can turn it back to you on this again, is, is the fact that, as to to make good on basically epic deception, they had to agree to electrify America, and that has been a huge infrastructure undertaking. They it was a, a massive settlement
8: that they agreed to with the U.S. and California, and Electrify America is this affiliate that you know is part of uh, two billion uh, uh, was was a portion of of that settlement that needed to go to setting up uh, charging infrastructure. And uh, sort of, you know, building up, uh, sort of educating uh, consumers in the U.S. about electric vehicles, and Electrify America is now the largest fast charging network in in the U.S. Uh, th- this is a company that uh, w- was. You know, set up by Volkswagen, funded by Volkswagen, but as sort of a condition of the settlement, it also needs to sort of benefit everybody. It can't just favor Volkswagen or be, you know, close to VW. So this is a a network that actually is being used by uh, Ford Mustang Mach-E drivers, uh, and it'll it'll be a a network that will really come in handy for, you know, really the broader efforts of the industry to go electric and take Elon Musk on.
2: As Craig writes, EVs are shifting from what seemed like a one-man show to an extravaganza with an increasingly crowded (laughs) stage. That's Bloomberg News Europe Auto's team leader, Craig Trudell, and Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber.
1: Could Elon be sharing the stage one day with the VW CEO? Perhaps. 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 (laughs) Stay tuned. Coming up, a look at housing from two different angles. First, the CEO of KB Home on what's really going on in the U.S. housing market.
2: Then, how tax policy impacts homeownership and the creation of wealth. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: We got a check on the housing market this week. Thanks to the latest quarterly update from KB Home, which posted fiscal first quarter revenues, it did come in below the lowest analyst estimate.
2: Home building stocks have been up just under 20% this year, and shares of KB Home up, uh, well, just around 30% mm-hmm. year to date. We got more on the industry and outlook when KB Home Chairman, President, and CEO Jeff Mesger joined us.
1: You guys had a pretty good quarter.
9: We did. We did. I was joking with someone. It's a good time to be a home builder.
1: <laughs> How good? Tell us, walk us uh, through the metrics.
9: Uh, actually, it's uh, as, as strong and as good as it's ever been, Carol both the demand side um, in particular is very strong right now interest rates are low we're coming out of the pandemic and the economy starting to percolate a little as you know evidenced just by the GDP you, you just reported so you have job growth you have a better economy people are feeling better strong demographics low interest rates and no no inventory out sure. there so it's uh, an incredibly strong combination for us right now of uh, solid demand, and low inventory.
2: Well, you have homes for sale throughout the United States in eight different states, Arizona, California, Colorado, Florida, Nevada, North Carolina, Texas, and Washington. Uh, Which market has the most opportunity? Which state has the most opportunity?
9: Yeah, it's odd to to say this, but right now, every city is performing very well. Hmm. The metrics I described of no inventory, strong demand, solid economy right now is is very broad-based across our footprint.
2: Any concerns about California, though? And I I asked this for a couple of reasons. One, I'm a Californian. We've seen so many reports, again, anecdotal, anecdotal reports of of people leaving California for um, among different reasons, but also going to places where you do that are that included in your markets, right? Florida, Texas. So why are you still bullish on California?
9: Well, the the demise of California has been predicted for about 50 years now, I Mm -hmm. think, and uh, we're, we're headquartered here, so it's our home state, and, and we enjoy the market here and the economy and what's going on. And If you look at our, our business, one of our indicators of future revenue is our backlog. And our backlog at the end of the quarter was up basically 100% year over year. Our, our backlog in California was over a well over a billion dollars. There's just an, a shortage of housing in this state. It's very underserved right now. And uh, uh, demand is good, and and we're enjoying a a strong market right now.
1: Jeff, what about a shortage of land? I mean, do you guys have enough land to meet the demand that you're seeing in terms of order flow?
9: Uh, We do, and and it's growing right now, Carol. I Hmm. I, uh, I used to refer to this as a supply-constrained recovery Hmm. in that uh, coming out of the financial crisis, the issue was the industry didn't have enough approved land to develop because things had had, uh, stopped. And now... Now we're past that, and I shared on our call yesterday, in the fourth quarter, we increased our spend on land and development by 40% year over year. And in the first quarter, again here, we were up 37%. So we're actually increasing pretty significantly the investment we're making in future growth.
1: So Jeff, I wish you were here because the conversation we were having kind of behind the scenes about, you know, maybe how homes change as a result of the pandemic. Are we all going to look at them differently? Are we going to want in every home, maybe a little workout space, an office just in case?
9: Um, It's a great topic right now. And in, in our business, Carol, we believe in personalization of the home. So when we sell a home, um to someone we we don't build it and then sell it we sell it let them personalize it in right. our studio and then we build it for them and there's a lot of flex space in the homes and and we rolled out a what we called a kb home office feature where you could convert a bedroom or a den to an office space and we're, we're seeing that as a pretty popular option right now whether it's people working from home or kids schooling from home or just a you know a, a new uh, area for a family to, to gather and
1: um, cuz you know uh, how you know how have... you know how people like their demands like it went from every you know homes years ago were like just every everything was its own space and then we got to kind of open concept and you know yeah. lots of open space and shared space and i just wonder is there something that you think as a result of the pandemic is going to kind of impact housing maybe for years to come or maybe not yeah.
9: um I, I think homes became more valuable and appealing to people because everyone wants their own space and Mm -hmm. we've all been spending a lot more time Mm -hmm. in our homes so you you want it to be yours the trends we're seeing with the consumer is still great rooms they want a lot of open space but then they want that little dedicated enclave they can go to to get away from the world as well
2: well speaking of the world I'm, I'm interested, Jeff, to hear where, where you were a year ago. We talk about it a lot because, as we, as we say here on Bloomberg Radio, it's been a year like no other. So so take yeah. me back to, to where you were last March when California was yeah. shut down and, and New York City yeah. well, was, was shut down. Did you ever foresee that you would have a 2020 and an early 2021 like this?
9: Absolutely not. It's been a, a wild ride. And as we look back on it, January and February last year, our sales were incredibly strong we were set up on a great trajectory to have a great year. And then the, the pandemic was declared and we went in the bunker mode. Um, I took some steps to protect the employees and their teams. And we actually shut our business down for about six wow. weeks, totally, totally shut down. And, and when you're in that mode, it's lower overhead, hoard cash, don't buy any lots. It's going to get worse. And uh, you plan for the worst and hope for the best. And then coming, Coming out of that, in May and June, things started to percolate. And by July or August, it it was an incredible run. And uh, we just had the the quarter we just reported is our our best quarter of sales in 15 years for a first quarter. But we're on the good side of the swing now.
1: Good, Good side of the swing. What about as rates start to go up? And listen... You know, we all have to remember perspective because you go back to the early 80s and, you know, we had mortgage rates that were off the charts. Um, so even a few higher points from here, it's still low by historical standards. But nonetheless, it can prevent some people from maybe being able to afford a mortgage with a higher rate. So are you, is there a certain rate that you're watching uh, or that you're concerned that if we start to go higher?
9: Uh, now, um we're, we're obviously mindful of rates and it's a math equation. You only make so much money. You can only afford so much. So if rates go up, it, uh, it, it squeezes
2: affordability. Look, it's always great to check in on housing. Of course, a good economic indicator.
1: Listen, we talk about it all the time. We are very closely watching what's happening in the New York metro area because there's been a lot of movement, but really across the country tells us so much. Fed Chair Powell constantly <gasps> asked about it, too. Mortgage rates. Yeah,
2: they're going up. Still low, though, mm. Historic, yes. by historical standards.
1: <laughs> Way down.
2: That's Jeff Mesger, CEO at KB Home. Well, still to come, more on housing and how tax codes disproportionately impact black Americans. It was a recent Businessweek cover story that profiled the work done by Emory law professor Dorothy Brown.
1: That story, that cover story really stayed with me. This week, she joined us to talk about her work. It's all in her book, The Whiteness of Wealth. She's coming up next. This is Bloomberg.
0: Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week.
2: Well, we promised you this next guest just a few weeks ago when she was the subject of a Bloomberg Businessweek cover story for her work and career as a law professor who's documented racism in a tax system that's supposedly colorblind.
1: Yeah, Tim, we're talking about Dorothy Brown. She's a professor over at Emory University School of Law. What she found out is that tax laws discriminate when it comes to things such as marriage and home ownership. It's all in this new book she's got out. It's called The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. How she got there. Well, it just kind of happened.
10: Yes, yeah, so I kind of fell into this. I didn't. I went into tax law thinking it had nothing to do with race. Deliberately went into tax law thinking it had nothing to do with race. And I'm doing my parents' tax return, and I'm the numbers are not adding up. They seem to be paying too much in taxes, but I can't figure out why. And I have a graduate degree in tax law. I know what I'm doing, but something didn't add up. Well, fast forward a few years later, I've been, I'm an academic. I read an article that said, how do you know there isn't a race and tax problem until you look? And I thought, really? (laughs) Race and tax? So I went looking and what I found over my 25 years of research is that whenever black and white Americans engage in the same activity, tax policy subsidizes how white Americans engage in the activity but penalize how Black Americans gauge in the activity.
1: So, dig down into that and explain that. How is that happening?
10: Yes, so we can start with marriage, mm-hmm. which is what got me on this road to begin with. My parents were two equal earner couples, they both worked full time. My mother and father contributed roughly equal amounts. Contrast that couple with a different married couple that has the same overall income that my parents had, but only earned by one person. One person works in the paid labor market. The other person works at home. Well, tax law gives a tax cut to the couple with the one wage earner, but no tax cut to couples like my parents. And for decades, couples like my parents paid higher taxes when they were married. So what does race have to do with it? Guess what? When you look at Census Bureau data, you find out that my parents, two equal earners, were the typical black couple, and the single wage earner getting a tax cut couple were white.
1: Well, and I feel like there was many times in, I know the story that uh, Ben Steverman of Bloomberg Businessweek wrote, and thinking about in your book that, you know, Tax policy, which you think would be colorblind, right? It's just policy, it's numbers, it's just, you know, you go down and you do it. But disproportionately, right. a lot of that policy, disproportionate was the word that I was going to go for, you know, used a lot that disproportionately, the policy, the tax policy, whether it was for home ownership or whether it was for marriage, it disproportionately impacted Black Americans.
10: Yes, and why is that? it's because black Americans live in a society with systemic racism. Why is it that you need two black couples right two black spouses working mm-hmm. to be able to bring in income that one spouse could could make well part of it is the labor market right Why does the labor market devalue black and white workers where, whereby they value white workers. So taxpayers bring their racial identities onto their tax return.
1: Who do you blame for this? Is it the policymakers? Who is it? Who's responsible for all of this?
10: Well. It has to be the people who write the laws, right? It has to be mm-hmm. Congress because we don't have tax policy without tax laws and we don't have tax laws without Congress.
1: Do you think any of the tax code that you have found through your research that sh- that is biased, do you think any of that will ultimately change? Because you've been pulled in by some of the staffers up on Capitol Hill. You've been consulted when it comes to race and tax, and I'm just curious what the momentum is that you're hearing maybe for change.
10: Right. So I so we can start with President Biden's first executive order where he talked about racial equity across the government and talked about data by race, including the secretary of the Treasury. Right. So the president has said racial justice is important across the government agencies, including Treasury. Now, I think there's a disconnect between that executive order and the discussions to date with the Biden administration because they're talking about these tax policies, but they're not talking about the racial impact of these tax policies.
1: Which needs so to be part of the I discussion, think the right? the Biden
10: administration has to figure out if you're committed, then you have to talk about it when you talk about tax change.
2: And with tax policy changes in the air again, we're gonna have to see if there's the political will to actually address any of the biases in the system. That was Dorothy Brown, professor at Emory University School of Law. Her new book, The Whiteness of Wealth, how the tax system impoverishes black Americans, and how we can fix it.
1: All right, everybody, coming up, a familiar name on a mission just like his grandfather. We hear from the grandson of Jacques Cousteau. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Green, Tim, reporting this week that the fossil fuel industry is talking about ESG like never before. The U.S. fossil fuels industry is still churning out emissions. We know that. But what's happening is we did some analysis of conference calls involving names like ExxonMobil Chevron and Kinder Morgan. And we found that ESG is coming up a lot in this conversation.
2: Somebody who's having a lot of conversations about the ESG space is Philippe Cousteau, co-founder of the nonprofit Earth Echo International. Also, Doug Heskey, the CEO of New Day Impact, it's an app and digital investing platform that lets users target a specific area of impact. The two are teaming up to inspire and teach young people how to take action and invest for a sustainable future.
11: I'm delighted to be here and, and delighted to talk about this partnership. You know, it, it's it's something environmental, um, uh, social governance, you know, ESG investing, sustainable investing has been something I've been involved in in a long time. And as someone focused now as a third generation of a family focused on conservation and education, um, it, uh, uh, we're big believers in the power of financial markets to, to be forces for good. And um, we're thrilled with this partnership with New Day because it allows us to continue both, both drive more uh, funding towards the, the work that Earth Echo does and reaching young people around the world. We're a leading environmental education organization with a focus on engaging young people as leaders, solving environmental problems. Um, we've to date impacted uh, over 2 million people in, in 146 countries. Uh, with our programs. And, um, and this will just supercharge our work and allow us to be even more impactful, but then also a recognition that, as I said, financial markets have an impact, um, and they can have a tremendous positive impact. And it's one of the choices we advocate people to to take, uh, uh, consistent with their values and sustainability is, is where they invest their money.
1: Well, listen, that's huge. I'm going to bring Doug in in a sec, but I just want to, Philippe, one, you know, money talks and we talk constantly about the boom in ESG investment, uh, $490 billion and counting and it's expected to grow. I mean, the kind of investments that individuals make um, or will make in the future, that's going to determine really where the money goes going forward. And, and that's the connection that you're making.
11: Well, it is. And, and you know, for the last decade or more I've been involved in one way, shape, or form in, in in the markets as well in sustainable investing. I was involved in some different exchange traded funds over the years and and really looking at how, you know, we have a uh, annual charitable giving in the United States is roughly uh, on private charitable giving hundred billion dollars. Uh, a very little of that goes to environment and even less to environmental education, conservation and yet financial markets are in, you know, what, 25, 30 trillion something, it's an enormous number. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought to myself, you know, 15 years ago, as I was working in a nonprofit and raising money, how do we sit at that table? Like, that's where change really happens. Mm-hmm. And so I started getting involved in, in that world because looking at what are those catalysts for change, when you drive funding towards good business, solid business, um, sustainable businesses, progressive businesses from an environmental perspective, we can really affect more change than simply doing the education and, and you know, conservation work on its own.
1: So I mentioned $490 billion. That was just governments, corporations, and other groups raising a record $490 billion last year, and that was selling green social and sustainability bonds. Another $347 billion went into ESG-focused investment funds, and we saw more than 700 new funds were launched globally to capture all of these influe- inflows, and that was 2020, and 2021 is shaping up to be as frothy. Doug, come on in. Your platform, your digital platform for investing, you guys are specifically targeting for those investments investors. investors who want to go after a specific area of impact, and the way you can invest is really novel ways.
12: Philippe said this so accurately, that there is a mind shift that's going on today and a groundswell that's building led by responsibly-minded investors. And they're not just people with higher levels of affluence and influence. There is a younger generation that appear to be more committed to making transformational change than ever before. And so it really was the catalyst and the inspiration for this organization here at New Day. And we asked ourselves, what is the impact that we could have if we were able to unleash this younger generation's vigor for deep and lasting change by giving them a mechanism for engagement that ends up being more grassroots oriented, allowing all of them to share their collectivized desire to change the world. And so this is what we do through New Day. So at our core, we're an institutional asset manager that provides impact investment portfolios. But we want so much more than that. We want these individuals that really care about these fundamental issues to engage and not just put their capital um, behind these issues, but to activate, to get involved in causes like Earth Echo and to volunteer time to participate in beach cleanups and things like that.
1: We have with us Philippe Cousteau, co-founder of the nonprofit Earth Echo International. He is still with us on the phone in Los Angeles, along with Doug Heskey. He is the CEO of New Day Impact, which is a digital platform for investing. Doug is with us on the phone in San Francisco. So Doug, let's talk a little bit about some of the ways that you can invest. I love it. It's sea turtles, it's coral reefs as a diver. These are things that are like near and dear to my heart. Um, Stopping plastic straws, you can also protect the poles, you can protect wild tigers, keep beach is clean. I mean, these are things that I think a younger population can relate to. They're saying, "Okay, this is what I want to help protect, so let me figure out the way to invest in those areas that actually get to that goal."
12: Yeah, no no question about this. And, you know, it's such an appropriate time to be talking about water health and ocean health. We spent a lot of time understanding how companies use water in their businesses whether their businesses are responsible stewards of water, and what companies are developing truly innovative technologies to protect and conserve the resource, as well as provide it to so many that don't have it. So water is playing this absolutely critical role in every business in the world, and this is the data work that we do behind the scenes. So whether it has to do with protection of fish populations or the coral reefs or reduction of ocean plastics and things like that, we are choosing these sub- subjects and engaging them, not just with a lo- uh, uh, a younger audience, but literally any other responsibly-minded investor mm-hmm. that use a responsibility to affect change in the world. A great example of that is is that we have a partnership with the SIFMA Foundation that runs the National Stock Market Game in the K-12 educational system. There are more than 600,000 students every year that are taught sustainability, as a part of economics classes, as a part of math classes in their K through 12 system. And Philippe is going to be joining us to do a live event with the SIFMA Foundation for their 600,000 students and the 15,000 teachers that teach in the classroom every day the importance of sustainability. All of this is done in an effort to really affect transformational change and get younger people and all people to think differently about how they're making not just investment and financial decisions, but even consumer purchasing decisions as well.
1: Right, changing habits. We've had guests on that talk specifically about that, have been involved in getting rid of straws and other things that you can change habits and make a a significant difference. Philippe, one thing I do want to ask you, you guys are reaching 600,000 students uh, each year. That is a lot of students. There are, though, 51 million public school students in the United States. There are a lot of kids out there. And I do wonder... um, that this is a way to also reach minority populations, less fortunate populations to teach these kids about how to protect the environment, how to be sustainable, but also create kind of a financial future for themselves and change the financial history perhaps of their families.
11: Well, you know, it's Carol, it's a great point. And, you know, because when we're talking about sustainability, we're talking about the environment we're talking about big issues, biodiversity decline, right? In, in, in my lifetime, in 40 years, the world's biodiversity has declined to 50%. And while we care about birds and trees and, and coral reefs, biodiversity is also what makes the world tick. So it also has an impact on us on our crops on our health on our food systems, etc. We've seen the oceans gone. We've got climate change as a massive crisis. And so, you know, solving these types of problems is going to take all of us and historically, um, you know, the environmental movement and environmental education uh, has not included uh, predominantly, you know, communities of color in the way that it should have. And that's, that's uh, that's something that needs to be addressed. And we've been at earth echo, been doing that for several years now, looking at how do we broaden the conversation and particularly reach those communities, because not only uh, do they need to be engaged, they're also typically the ones on the front lines of environmental degradation. So there's very much an environmental justice element here that comes to play. And that is, that is top of mind for us and has been for several years. Um, because we're all in this together, yeah. uh, you know, uh, no matter w- w- our politics, no matter our economics, we're all in this together. We need to solve these problems together. And education is the best and most important way to do that. Uh, and specifically with our partnership with SIFMA and New Day, um, you know, they reach well over 200,000 young people specifically from communities of color. Um, and, and that's a big uh, focus for them and, and also girls, um, right. who have often not been enough of a conversation, you know, part of the conversation about. Uh, uh, financial uh, literacy. And so right. um, that is a big focus for us. And uh, and we're excited about this partnership because uh, it expands and, and grows our audience of people that we can reach with this message.
2: Philippe Cousteau, co-founder of the nonprofit Earth Echo International, and Doug Heskey, the CEO of the digital impact investing platform New Day Impact.
1: We're done, Tim. Wow. I know. That one flew by. Exactly. And if you missed any of this podcast, listen, just check out our podcast because you can get the conversations uh, and some of the full conversations because we're just giving you little excerpts. That wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm
2: Tim Stenovek. And be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show. It's Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio.
1: You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. You can see us. Just search Bloomberg Global News.
2: And check out, too, our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple or wherever you get your podcast,
1: And Tim, that's where you're also going to find our extra podcast. This week, it's Ted Sides. He's founder and managing partner of Capital Allocators. He hosts a podcast by the same name. He's talking to the world's top professional investors. We're talking about those conversations and his new book, How the World's Elite Money Managers Lead and Invest.
2: You can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV and more.
1: Bloomberg Business Week, it's available on newsstands right now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: This is Bloomberg.